The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. All right, let's pray and let's get rolling. Happy Easter, guys. Father, I thank you for the truth of this morning, the reason that we are gathered, not just this morning, but any morning that we gather to worship you, God, that this is the truth that stands behind it all. And Father, I pray that you would meet each of us here in this room with the power of that truth. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be here in this room, that you would speak to us, and that you would meet with us. Father, I don't ask that you would make my sermon a great sermon, but Father, I pray that you would make your Son a great Savior to every person who is here this morning. May he be lifted up. May he be glorified. May he be seen for the glorious one that he is. God, would you help us to find our joy in him and in the truth of who he was, who he is, and what he came and did for us. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, we're here because it's Easter. And as Dale mentioned, it's a big deal for Christians uh, we're here because we're wearing, like, uh, some of us, a little bit nicer clothes than usual. Um, and that's, if you know me very well, this is not very usual. I'm wearing this jacket for you guys so that you won't think I, I'm a, a slop shekel preacher on a slop shekel. Is that a word that other people use? Uh, a friend of mine used that word all the time. Um, but it, so, so, so I'm, I'm wearing this jacket for you guys. We're here. Some of us are dressed a little bit nicer. We're here because it's tradition to come on Easter. Uh, some of you guys are here every week or at your church every week, and that's awesome. Some of you guys are here occasionally or at church occasionally, uh, maybe Christmas and Easter, and that's awesome. We're so glad that you're here. Some of you, you're just here because, like, your friend or your neighbor just kept conjoling you and handing you a card over and over again until you said, hey, I'll shut you up. I'll come with you today. But we're, that's why we're here today. We're here because it's Easter. But if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, this Easter morning, as we're talking about Jesus Christ lived a perfect life, died a death, and was risen again for you and for me, then if we're going to be honest with ourselves this morning, we all have some doubts. We all come with a little bit of doubt. We all come with a little bit of disappointment. We all come with some deep and profound sadness in our life. You, you all, like, we all look nice this morning. It's Easter. It's nice outside, and we're smiling, and man, there's Krispy Kreme donuts, so there's a lot of reason to smile this morning. But if we're honest, each of us in this room have some sort of deep and profound sadness some sort of deep and profound disappointment, some sort of deep and profound doubt and frustration that's with our lives. As we gather here and we hear these songs playing and see Brandy wearing a jacket and there's palm trees and it's Easter morning and we feel like, man, this should be a morning I should be excited. We wonder, like, I wonder if this really matters at all. My deep and profound doubt and disappointment and frustrations and sadness that is in my life, 
I wonder, does, that, does any of this that we're singing about and talking about and gathering here in this morning make any sort of difference? And in that, if you're here with those sort of thoughts, whether they're in the forefront of your head or the back of your mind, if you're here with that sort of thought and that sort of doubt and that sort of disappointment, that sort of sadness, then you are in great company. It is what we see in every single person in this story that was just read for us. Every single person that was involved in the story of Jesus' death and resurrection was wondering what in the heck is going on with this. Some of them were deeply involved. They were his disciples. They had followed him for three years. They had lived with him for three years. They thought he was the one who would come to make all things right and fix everything that was broken. And then when they see him betrayed by one of his own and turned over to the Jewish authorities and sentenced and sent to Pilate, and Pilate says, man, I don't know what to do with him. You may as well kill him. And they beat him and flog him and crucify him. They're wondering what in the world is going on. Our hopes and dreams are totally dashed. Some of the people were more just tangentially involved. There are people like the Jewish authorities and Pilate that Jesus kind of ran across their day-to-day life and they had to figure out, what am I going to do with this Jesus? And really, if we're honest this morning, that's really the question that all of us have to face. Is what are we going to do with this Jesus? Some of the people were more just passers-by. They watched him. You heard that the, the passage. They watched him be crucified, and they went away beating their breasts, wondering what in the world is going on here. They all, each of these people that are involved, they responded differently during the trial of Jesus, his death, and his burial. But they would all, every single one of them, all of them would be changed by the events on that Sunday morning when Jesus rose again. Every single one of their lives going forward for positive or negative, was changed because of what happened that Sunday morning more than 2,000 years ago. And that's because the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. The fact that Jesus died, was buried, and resurrected is the seminal, the bedrock truth in all of human history, in all of the universe. And the truth is, no matter where you are this morning or what background you're coming from or where you think you are or are not in faith and what you think about Jesus and the church and other Christians, and hey, I understand if you have a bad, if you, have, if you think the church and people like, like Christians, like, just like, if they kind of turn your stomach sometimes, I can understand and relate to that. We don't always have a great sterling reputation, but the one that we worship does. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is the great seminal or bedrock truth in all of human history. And it is, no matter where you are this morning in your belief, it is the bedrock seminal truth in your life. There is no greater thought. There is no greater argument. There is no greater thing to think about or to consider for you in your entire lifetime than who was Jesus and what was his death, burial, and resurrection all about. We're going to look at three things this morning. We're going to run through them as quickly as I possibly can. We're going to see three ways that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. We're going to see, first of all, the resurrection of Jesus changed the entire world. 
We're going to see the resurrection of Jesus change the people involved. And then lastly, we're going to see that the resurrection of Jesus can change you. First of all, the resurrection of Jesus changed the world. Here's the truth, and it's easier to imagine in South Carolina on a nice spring day like this. But the world was made good. For all that is wrong with the world, and there's a lot wrong, right? Just look at the news for a day or two. There's a lot wrong with the world. Things don't seem to quite work like they're supposed to, but the world was made to be good. And we have that sense. Like when we see things that are happening that are bad or evil, that happen to us or around us or even far from us, like we know intrinsically, somewhere inside us, we know something is not quite right. This is not the way things were meant to be. We have a a sense instinctively of longing for something better. Something right, something for things to be made right, to be made whole again. We have this instinctual feeling like like this is not the way things were made to be. This world and life was made to be good. It was made to be joyous. It was made to be full of peace and harmony between each other. Even though it doesn't look like that, we know that it's what it's supposed to be like. We have a sense that things should be better. And we have a a longing or a wish that things could be better. When our great, great, great grandparents, Adam and Eve, when they first sinned in the garden, in a perfect world that they were put in charge of, when they first sinned in the garden, it's like they cut out the light. In fact, in Romans 8, it says that, uh, that the creation itself has been subjected to futility since then. That word futility means, uh, it means like a, an emptiness or a fruitlessness. I think that's a good word. A fruitlessness is when you see a tree that's supposed to be bearing fruit. We had, when I grew up, I grew up in the country, we had two pear trees in my backyard. We had one pear tree that annoyed us as kids because every summer it would produce copious amounts of pears. And now the problem was I don't like pears. And yet I would be in charge of picking up the pears or picking the pears. And then the, the pears that were ripe would fall on the ground and they would, they would rot. And there would be bees and wasps flying everywhere. So you had to pick your way through the bees and wasps to get the good pears that I didn't even want to eat. Now that's the good tree that we had even though we hated it. There was another tree on the other side of our backyard and it was messed up. It did not work correctly. After Hurricane Hugo in 1989, something happened with that hurricane, and it sort of hit the, a weird button on the tree, and it would blossom, like the blossoms would come out like in December sometimes, but not every December. Sometimes it would blossom in December, and other times in January or February, but it always blossomed at the wrong time. It never produced pears. It was, like the other one was so fruitful that it was frustrating. This one was just an annoyance because it just took up space and didn't do what it was meant to do. And that's what this world is like. We have a sense of what it should be, but it just keeps coming up fruitless over and over again. And ever since then, ever since Adam and Eve cut out the light and with this world has been subjected to futility or fruitlessness, we have all been groping around in the darkness trying to find our way. 
Trying to find that sense of what a thing that we have lost, that we're looking for, that we're longing for, the sense of rightness and wholeness of peace that this world could be and should be like, we're groping around trying to find it. Because, see, we were made to, to deeply be known and to know other people. Isn't that a longing that we have? To deeply be known by people, but who love us anyway, and to deeply know people. To have friends that you have inside jokes with, that you know, like, you're tight with. We're constantly searching for that and longing for it. Every social media platform that we have is a result of our longing to be more intimately connected with each other. But it's really more like just a, a, a sort of a bunch of headlines that fly past where you see what people are doing, but you don't actually know them. You know what's going on in my life. You know that my kids went to the fair this week, and you know that they spent time with friends. If you are on Facebook, because Megan's posting that stuff, but you don't. We're, not, we're less involved with each other and less known and less knowing of other people, even though we have more platforms to know. We long to deeply know and to be known. But in this darkness, the, there's inherent in the darkness is this sense of conflict. It separates us. We have this great longing to be known, and yet really, we would rather stay in the secret. Because I don't really want you to know, let's be honest this morning, I don't really want you to know my worst habits because I'm afraid what you're going to think about me. You don't want me to know yours either. That's why with the face that we put on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and whatnot are all our best face forward and it's not what our lives are really like. We all want deep, meaningful relationships, but we're afraid to truly be known. We feel alone. We feel lonely. We are more connected than ever as a people. We feel lonely, but we would rather be in secret because we don't want to be known. We don't know the right way in life. If most of us were honest in here, even the most prideful and most confident, the most together people in this room, if we were honest... We don't really know what we're doing. We might be killing it in one area of life. You might be knocking out the park in business, but your personal life is a shamble. You might have a really good family life, but you can't ever get your other stuff together. There's these parts of your life that you keep duct taping and masking taping up, but everything else tends to keep falling apart. We don't know the right way, but we're too prideful to submit to each other and to ask for help. To see what's been going on ever since the fall is we've been trying to cover ourselves with fig leaves just like Adam and Eve. We've been trying to cover ourselves from this secret feeling of embarrassing nakedness. I said nakedness on church on the Easter. This, this embarrassing sense of nakedness that we feel to each other. We, we, we feel, no matter how confident we are on the outside, we, we, inside, we are afraid that we're going to be found out for the frauds that we are. We are longing for security and identity and value and purpose and joy. And we will look for security, identity, value, purpose, and joy anywhere and everywhere we find it. But we're groping around in the darkness looking for it. 
And we will look for, any, for it anywhere but from him. And you know who him is. The capital H. The one who created us and for, for whom we were created. And the problem is that we've learned to love the darkness. That we know it's not working. But we would rather stay in our darkness than to be exposed to the light. We're all rebels stuck in a broken kingdom of our own making. And the question that should be posed to all of us in this room, including me, is how's that working out for us? How's our track record? I don't know about yours. Mine is not good. And I don't know about yours personally, but I know human history we have a really bad reputation, a really bad background. But the death and resurrection of Jesus changed all of that. Because when Jesus came, he came back as the rightful king returning to his kingdom. But he didn't come as a conqueror. He came as a suffering servant on a rescue mission for you and for me. For you and me groping around in darkness looking for our own way, he came as a suffering servant on a rescue. He came to offer free grace and take the bullet that you and I had coming for us. That's what the angels reminded the women of in chapter 24, verse 6, whenever he said, whenever they came into the, the tomb and they were wondering what was going on, and the angel said, He is not here, but he has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. He came, Jesus came to die for you and for me and he came to be resurrected again. And in doing so, he has conquered all of our enemies. Every single enemy that you and I have, Satan, he has conquered Satan in his death and resurrection. Have you ever had times it felt like, maybe you don't even believe in the spiritual stuff, or maybe you believe in God but not in Satan, but have you ever felt in your life like, like there's a force that's opposing you? And no matter how much you try to get your junk together, like there's this some sort of cosmic force that's pushing against you and keep you, keep you from going in the right direction? Well, the answer is there is. You're created in the image of God and you have an enemy of your soul. And Jesus conquered the enemy of your soul whenever he was killed for your sin and resurrected again. He conquered all of our enemy. He conquered sin itself, the record of debt that we had against God. He conquered the enemy of evil. He conquered the enemy of ourselves. I don't know about you, but I am my biggest enemy. I'm the one that keeps tripping myself up most of the time. And he came to even conquer my, to conquer me. And he conquered death itself. Most of our fears are based, almost all of our fears really are based in a fear of death. And he conquered, this morning we're we're remembering, he conquered death itself. He broke darkness. He overcame death. The resurrection of Jesus changed the whole world. And the resurrection of Jesus changed the people that were involved. 
Now let's be honest again this morning. The idea of resurrection, the idea that Jesus died, was in the grave, and on the third day he rose again is kind of a crazy idea. It's a pretty outlandish claim. No other religion makes quite as outlandish a claim. Even, even the one that says that we're like riding the back of a cosmic turtle. Like it's as crazy as that may sound to us this morning. The idea that Jesus came and died and was resurrected again is a pretty crazy, ridiculous claim. And, it, we, and Christianity owns that. It's owned it in the story in that we see that every single person involved, even the ones closest to him, when they heard the news that the tomb was empty, they were all shocked and didn't understand what was going on on. The women who were the first ones on the scene who walked in, they wondered like who stole the body? That's their first thought. If somebody had stolen the body, where is he? The angel had to remind them that this is exactly what Jesus promised was going to happen. Then they ran and told the disciples and the disciples heard it, thought they were crazy. Some of them came and saw the empty tomb and still didn't believe the women. No one believed even the most loyal followers. But here's as crazy as the idea of Jesus resurrecting is, the other, alter- the other alternatives were crazier. Because see, Jesus was executed by an expert Roman band of executioners. They knew exactly what they were doing. They were not amateurs at this. They had killed hundreds and perhaps thousands of people before this in this same way. They knew what it was like to kill a man through crucifixion. It was an incredibly painful and excruciating death. When the time came, they came by. They had to hurry up and get them off the, the cross because the Sabbath was coming. The, Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath began at sundown. They had to get them off the cross. And when they walked up to Jesus, instead of breaking his legs to speed up his death, they saw that he was already dead. So instead of breaking their, his legs, they pierced him in the side. And out of that wound on the side, coagulated blood and water flowed, showing that he had already been dead for a while. He was was expertly crucified. He was confirmed to be dead. And then he was sealed by the authorities in a tomb, a borrowed tomb. They put him in the tomb. They rolled a stone over it, and they sealed the tomb. And then they set a Roman guard at the the front of the tomb to keep it safe so no one would come and steal the body. And then after Jesus resurrected, uh, five, over 500 people saw him alive. In fact, later on, Paul standing before King Festus and King Agrippa, and he says, hey, if you don't believe what I'm saying, 500 people saw him alive, and many of them, this is about 20 years later or so, many of them are still alive, and you can go talk to them if you want to. As crazy as the idea that Jesus resurrected is, the, the idea for everybody that was involved that he had not risen again was even crazier. And then if you want to look at more proof of the proof of the resurrection, look at how it changed the lives of the people involved. First of all, we see in the passage that was read that Jesus is crucified on the cross between two other crosses. There, two thieves are on the cross, we're told, two criminals. And one of them from the cross mocks him and says, hey, if you're the king of the Jews, if you're the powerful one, command the angels to come and take us off this cross right now. He's mocking him even at the point of his death. But the other one cries out and says, don't you have any shame? This man is a sinless man. We are guilty. 
And he cries out to Jesus and says, Jesus, would you remember me? This thief on the cross, this criminal, even on the cross, saw something different. And Jesus said, not only will I remember you, but today you'll be with me in paradise. It turned this hopeless into hopeful. That man, all of a sudden, what short life that he had left, it was totally changed. He wasn't dying and passing on to a nothingness. He wasn't dying and passing on to eternal damnation. He was dying and he was going to be present with the Lord. It turned the hopeless into the hopeful. It turned the skeptic into a believer. This centurion, this grizzled Roman soldier who had seen things and had done things, had been places that you and I could not imagine, as he's standing there and watching Jesus die, he cannot help but say, there is something different about this man. And throughout all history, skeptics have had to admit that. No matter where you are on the scale today, we have to admit there's something different about Jesus. There's something different about this man. No other man, no other being, no other person has changed human history the way that he did. He turned skeptic, a skeptic at, while he was dying into some sort of believer. Ever since then, he's done the same. In fact, standing, or not standing, but, but alive at this time was Saul, who would later become the Apostle Paul. And he was an incredible skeptic. He didn't believe he was who he, who he said he was going to be. But he was convinced later. He turned the strong into the weak through his resurrection. Pilate and the rulers of the Jewish people, Pilate who represented the power of the Roman Empire, the most powerful country on the face of the earth at this time and up to this point, with all the power of the empire behind him, could not stop Jesus from fulfilling the prophecy of being killed and then raising again, no matter how they sealed the stone, no matter how they set guards in the way, they could not stop it. There was no explanation afterwards of how the tomb was empty. He turned the strong into weak. He turned the marginalized into valued. Luke brings up three times here in this passage that women were intimately involved in this process. In fact, not only were they intimately involved, but women were the first people who saw the empty tomb and saw Jesus alive. Now, this is a crazy thing to have in ancient literature because women at this time, their testimony was not even allowed in a court of law. So Jesus, God, in his power, in his sovereignty, had had ordained that the first people that the resurrection would be declared to would not be his faithful disciples or faithless disciples. It wouldn't be men. It wouldn't be the powerful. It would be the marginalized women who would see him first. He turned the coward or the cowards into courageous. We see that in the disciples. Peter, one of his closest, denied that he even knew Jesus, not once, not twice, but three times. The rest of the disciples, all scattered at his greatest point of need, they were cowards when the chips were down. And yet, post-resurrection, we see them 
not too long from now, standing up on the day of Pentecost and declaring the truth that Jesus was who he said he was, that he died, that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day with power and authority, not caring that they're going to be turned over to the lions, not caring they're going to be turned, that they risk death and imprisonment. And throughout history, Christians have done the same things. They've stood up for Jesus knowing that it could cost them greatly. Notice it could cost them lives and they count their lives as nothing for the glory of knowing Jesus Christ. That can't be explained unless their resurrection changed them, which it did. It changed, the resurrection of Jesus changed the sinner to saints. This stands out to me about the story. Because it's not just Jesus' faithful followers afterwards that are proclaiming that he's been risen from the dead. It's, his, it's even people who doubted whenever he was alive, dead, and immediately afterwards. He turns sinners, which was his disciples who had left him. He turns the sinners who had doubted him and had wasted much of their life doing their own thing. He turns them into saints by giving them his righteousness through his sacrifice and giving them the promise of eternity through his resurrection. See, here's the thing. Your and my former accolades and goodness won't do anything to help us with Jesus. None of those who followed Jesus at, the, at this time were of much account. They were, they were peasants. They were failed zealots. They were marginalized, despised. They were the women. They were the tax collector. They were, the, they were, the, they were, they were partying fishermen who were known as the sons of thunder. These were his followers. None of those who followed Jesus at this time were much account. In fact, even the only one that would come a little bit later, Saul, as I already mentioned, he would say, hey, all my resume, which is very impressive, I count as dung, as rubbish, for the, fat, for the glory of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord and to be connected to him. He had to forget or even reframe all of his former accomplishments and all of his former failures in order to follow Jesus. So what could account for this remarkable change in unremarkable people? Because these people that we see in this part of the story, and even the early believers in the early part of the church, were incredibly unremarkable people. For the first couple of generations, most of the new believers in Christianity were slaves and servants and the marginalized. And yet they were changed to people who would boldly proclaim the gospel of Jesus, no matter what it cost them. They would love each other. They would love the unlovely. They would love the people that hated them and despised them in such a way that it would cause other people to look at them and say, what is it with this Jesus man that you are worshiping and following that has caused this change in you? Well, here's what causes that change. It can only be explained that to believe in that Jesus was who he said he was and he did what he said he was going to do, that to believe that and to submit to him as your personal Lord and Savior is to be united to the one by whom you were created and for whom you were created. That to believe in him and to submit to him is to find a deep sense of purpose and meaning in your life. Do you feel without a purpose and meaning in your life? 
If the Son of God has died for you and has destined you and called you to be his son or daughter, then you have a great purpose in your life, no matter how forgotten you may feel, no matter how purposeless, no matter how meaningless you may be afraid that your life is when you wake up early in the morning. Their lives are changed because the truth of of who he was and what he did means that to know him and to be known by him, to be united to him, is to find the identity that we long for. Because I don't know who you are and what your background is. You may say, I come from nothing and I feel like I'm going to nothing. Or I've wasted my life. I've wasted the advantages that were given to me. My life is, I don't know who I am anymore. I, I thought I was a good looking and now I'm not anymore. I thought I was talented and now I'm not so sure. I have all these secret fears that are swirling around in the depth of my soul. Here's who you are. If you, are a, if you have been adopted as a son or daughter of the king, you are a prince or princess in the kingdom of God the Father. That's your identity. And that's an identity that can lead you no matter where you need to go. To risk no matter what you need to risk for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of the king. Because what can this world take from you if your identity is tied into the anchor of Jesus Christ who at this point is risen at the right hand of the Father on high? And he's your older brother, and his father is now your father. And his Holy Spirit that empowered him to be risen from the dead is alive and present and empowering you. What can this world do? To be loved with that kind of love. Think about what kind of love it means that Jesus Christ gave himself for you. For you. Only you and I know just how worthless we really are. That fear that we have of being worthless. But Jesus died for you and rose again for you and not to keep you at arm's length, but to be united to him, not just now, but throughout all eternity. When this world passes away or you close your eyes for the last time, you'll be present with the Lord and be united to him in close, intimate relationship. To be loved like that is to find the security that you and I are craving. To experience this kind of free grace. That he did it when we had nothing in our hands to bring. We brought nothing to the table. We had nothing going for us. Just like the people in the story. He brought us and gave us free grace. And to experience that kind of free, unmerited grace. That we cannot earn. That we would not have earned if we could have. But we could not earn. Is to experience an unbreakable joy. Unbreakable. When life goes south, when you get that call that you're afraid of, when you lose your job, when you don't have money left in the bank account, when you don't know what you're going to do, what will tomorrow bring? There's going to be an unbreakable joy because we've been given free grace. No one could ignore the fact that the grave was empty. And no one could ignore the fact that people were changed. It was news that couldn't be ignored 2,000 years ago. And it's news that cannot be ignored now. Lastly, the resurrection of Jesus can change you. Here's a list of things that 
are true if the resurrection is true. If the resurrection of Jesus that we are celebrating this morning is true, then God is real. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then you were made by him and you were made for him. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then what God says about our sin, the Bible says about our sin, is real and true. But if the resurrection of Jesus is true, then a way of free grace has been provided for you by Jesus' death. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then you and I can be adopted as sons and daughters of God. Sons and daughters of the King. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then you and I can be born again and anew, given a new nature. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then a hope for a future unstained by death can be yours. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then the empty grave can't be ignored. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then it can change you. It can change your mind. It can change the way that you think about yourself. It can change the way that you think about God and about this world. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then it can change your heart and your nature. The same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. Whenever you confess him as Lord and bow your knee to him, floods your inner being and gives you new life in him and changes your very nature. You aren't stuck the way that you are. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then it can change your future. If the resurrection of Jesus is true, then it can change your destiny. Whatever the world can throw at you if you're a believer. It doesn't matter much because this world is the blink of an eye and we'll be present with our risen Lord. If you're a Christian, Jesus who raised from the dead is your master, your older brother, and your friend. His father is your father and the Holy Spirit who raised him is in you. If you're not a Christian this morning, that can be yours today. This Resurrection Sunday can be your day of new life. You know how it changes you? It changes you because it's good news. That's been freely, what's been freely given by Jesus. We just respond in repentance turning away from our old life and faith that he did, that he was who he said he was, and he did what he said he would do. The death and resurrection of Jesus on your behalf is news. It's not a call to be better. It's news about what has been done for you. We didn't die for ourselves. We didn't raise ourselves. We didn't kill Jesus. He gave his life for us. We didn't raise him. We couldn't. He did it. And he gets all the glory for it. And we get all that joy. I'm going to pray and the band's going to come up and they're going to lead us in a song. And during that song, you feel free to respond however is natural for you. You can stand or sit. After that, Justin's going to come. He's going to lead us in communion. 
if, during, if, if God has been speaking to you this morning in some way, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, you'd like to become one this morning, then I want to invite you to, either during the song or after communion, we have a prayer area in the back. Somebody would love to pray with you. You can find me or Dale. We'll be, we'll be happy to pray with you this morning. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.